Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me uh, to the book of Colossians. Let's go to chapter 1. We want to pick up our study in verse 1 through verse 14. This morning, Paul's thanksgiving and prayer for the church at Colossae. As we do in a new book study, as we begin, we want to give an introduction. And so Colossae, a city of Pergia, what's interesting is that Paul never went uh, to Colossae. He does not know who they are. He receives a report from Epaphras, and Epaphras is telling them. And so Paul writes to them. We know that back in Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 10, that there when the power of the Holy Spirit fell upon the church, there were those that were from Pergia. And so it's possible that through this is how the church was started. We don't know if Epaphras is the, the one that started the church, but we know that he is the pastor. Now, let me give you some authorship here. We know that it's Paul the Apostle, the one that's born out of due season as an apostle. And we're going to see in verse 1 that he declares this apostleship. It's very important to him because he's going to be dealing with doctrine. The book of Colossians was written to the churches in Colossae, the churches in Laodicea, and the churches in Hierapolis. And so it was important, and here we are this morning partaking of it. Now, the date of the writing is somewhere around 64 A.D. It was written during Paul's imprisonment there in Rome. Remember, we know that Paul's been in prison for two years span. And he writes the book of Ephesians, the book, the book of Philippians that we studied uh, just recently, the book of Colossians. And now, lastly, he's going to be writing to Philemon. And so four prison epistles. But I want you to remember this because... Uh, the whole theme of the gospel or this uh, letter, the epistle to the Colossians is the preeminence of Christ. And here's the reason. The purpose of the epistle, the doctrine of Gnosticism, was very rampant and it was running amok. When we speak of uh, the doctrine of preeminence, we, we speak of, uh, excuse me, the preeminence of Christ because uh, the superiority, that's what I'm trying to say, uh, the supreme of Christianity. Uh, you understand that heresies had come in. Now, let me give you the heresies. I was going ahead of myself. Uh, Gnosticism. Nelson's Bible Dictionary says this about Gnosticism. A system of false teachings that existed during the early centuries of Christianity. Its name came from the Greek word for knowledge or gnosis. Gnosticism was condemned as false and heretical by several writers in the New Testament. Basically, Gnosticisms, the Gnostics believed that knowledge was the way to salvation. There are those today that still think that knowledge is the way to salvation. One of the biggest doctrines, or in the doctrine of Gnosticism, was that they believed Jesus, when he walked, he was a phantom. That he was a spirit, he was a ghost, and we're going to read scripture that's contrary to that. It's very important that we see Jesus in his incarnation, that he was all man, he was all God. I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, and let's go to uh, chapter 24, and we want to pick up our study in verse 36. 
You see, there are those even still today, as in the time of the writing to the Colossians, the time of the New Testament church, the Gnostics. They came in and said, listen, knowledge is your salvation. And denying who Christ is, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Denying his deity. And so Jesus, we know that he was born a man. He died. He was buried. And he resurrected. And we know that there was a 40-day post-resurrection. And here in Luke chapter 24 it is a beautiful picture here. Now, before I read this, if you're taking notes, in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, we also read concerning after uh, this 40-day post-resurrection. And then in Acts chapter 1, before he ascends into heaven, they see him, they know him. But probably the biggest testimony, the greatest testimony, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Bible says that over 500 witnessed the risen Christ. Now that's important because you generally can't get five people to tell you the right story. There's always change. And so now here you have over 500 that witness the risen Christ. What a testimony. And so he was not a ghost. He was not a phantom. He was a man. But he was also God. Now listen to Luke 24, verse 36. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself, he stood in the midst of them, and he said to them, Peace to you. Now this is after Jesus' death his burial, and now his resurrection. And he's in his post-40-day resurrection there in Jerusalem. Verse 37, but they were terrified. They were frightened. They supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do you doubt? Arise, why do doubts arise in your heart? Where's your faith? That's what he's saying. Where's your belief and your trust in God? Back in John chapter 20 when doubting Thomas... He says, I can't believe until I see him. I can't believe until I put uh, my fingers in the nail prints of his hands and his feet and touch his side. But we know that Thomas, when Jesus came back eight days later, he says, Thomas, my hands and my feet. And Thomas was overwhelmed and he worshiped God. He fell on his face and he worshiped him. And then Thomas says, my Lord and my God. So he says to him in verse 38, why are you troubled? Why do, do doubts arise in your heart? What about us this morning? Why do we believe in Christ? Why do we believe in his resurrection? But it's by faith. And as we look at the scriptures, we believe by faith. And so he goes on and he says, verse 39, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, handle me, see for a, a spirit, does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. I like this. It takes care of Gnosticism. They're not seeing a phantom. They're not seeing a ghost. They're not seeing a spirit. And we know that Jesus resurrected. And so imagine what's going through their hearts. In verse 41 it says, And while they still did not believe for joy and marvel, he said to them, Have you any food? And this is important here. Can a ghost partake of food? Can a spirit partake of food? So they gave him, look at verse 42, a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. Beautiful. 
And he took it, he ate it in their presence. Here's Jesus, Son of God, Savior of the world. The incarnate God partaking with him, breaking bread with him. And yet when he came to see Thomas the second time in John chapter 20, he was able to go through the wall. This is the power of God that we serve. And so let's go back to our text now. <coughs> Excuse me. I still have that cold. Now let me just give you a little bit of background of the city of Colossae. We know that Epaphras was the pastor, and he was probably from Ephesus. We're not sure. But Paul preached at Ephesus, or he heard the gospel there, one or the other. But the city of Colossae was a city in a Roman province of Pergia, which we understand today as West Turkey, situated in the Lycus River Valley, about 100 miles excuse me, east of Ephesus. The Christian community of Colossae grew up under the leadership of Epaphras and another brother by the name of Archippus. We're going to read that Philemon and Onesimus lived at Colossae. Uh, Colossae formed a triangle with two other cities in the Lycus Valley, Heropolis and Laodicea. Colossae was then a well-known and prosperous city. And it's interesting that Paul didn't go there. Paul didn't raise this church up. But Paul heard of them. Epaphras had come uh, to uh, Paul and gave him testimony of them. So Paul now writes this epistle to them. And you're going to see this morning, he is so thankful for them. And then he has this prayer for them. And before we get into the prayer, I want you to think about it. I want you to take time in your prayer. That you pray for the churches. That you pray for the pastors. That you pray for the body of Christ. This is Paul's heart here. You're going to see it. And so we begin here. In verses 1 and 2, there's always this greeting as Paul begins his letter. And he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and I love this, by the will of God. Not by the will of man, but by the will of God. And then he speaks of Timothy, our brother, our brother in Christ. Timothy was Paul's sidekick. Timothy was Paul's protege. Timothy was his son in the spirit. Paul took him under his wing. He says, so Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Then he goes right into verse 2, and this is to the church at Colossae, to the saints and to the faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. And here's the two Siamese twins of the New Testament. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is unmerited favor. Peace is rest unto you, brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, verse 2, he's speaking about the saints at Colossae. You've been a Christian long enough. You hear the term saint, and we're told that saints are usually dead. And then they're, you know, canonized and such. But it's interesting that Paul's speaking to the living. We've always read that saints here are alive and well on earth, not dead, then later acclaimed by man to sainthood. And so Paul is saying to the living saints at Colossae, faithful brothers, sisters, at the church at Colossae. Interesting. Now, this morning, if you're a Christian, you're a believer in Christ, you're born again of the Holy Spirit, you've given your life to Jesus, let me announce this to you. You're a saint. 
You're, oh, Pastor Bob, wait a minute. You don't know me. I, I imagine what you do, but you're a saint if you're born again of the Holy Spirit. You see, you don't have to wait to be dead and then to be later canonized, but listen to these words now. The word saint, we've shared this before, is the word hagios. Now, when you hear the description of hagios, you're a Christian, you're going to say, that's not me. And I grant you, it's not you, it's not me either. But it's only through Christ. The word hagios means that you are a holy one, you're a sacred one, you're a pure one, you're a blameless one, you're a religious one. And you say, well, I don't fit any of these. I try to be pure, I try to be holy, I try to be righteous, and I'm not. That's why we need Christ. But it's interesting, if you go further into the root word of the word hagios. Now listen to this. The root word is hagos. And the translation will fit us now. The word hagos means an awful thing. And so now all of a sudden you're the holy one, but it comes from the root, root word, awful thing. But here's the key, don't get frustrated, is that we're all saved, and God saved this awful thing. He saved that awful thing. That's the whole purpose of the gospel. We need Christ. I'm not holy. I'm not righteous. I'm not sacred. But in Christ, he bestows that upon me, upon you. And so this is how Paul addresses the, the church at Colossae. And then he begins here in verse 3. The thanksgiving for this church. Look at verse 3. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the key to Paul's ministry. Praying always for you. Remember that Paul's in a prison situation there in Rome for two years span. And there in prison, we've mentioned in time past, he had time to counsel some of those that would come to him. He taught them those that would come to him. He was like in a house arrest. He led some to Christ while he was in prison. All of this happened, church, listen, because Paul was a man of prayer. The things that have happened in your life, those that are in your household that have come to Saving Grace, it's because you've spent time in prayer. You came to Saving Grace because somebody was praying for you. This ministry here at Calvary Chapel, we've been in existence for many years, and it's only through the power of prayer. And church, this morning, it's not just the pastor or the pastors that pray, but it's your prayer also. Paul was a man of vision. Paul was a man of prayer. Paul would always gather the hem of the garment of Christ, and he would pray. I want to take this a little further. Go with me. Leave a marker there. Go to the book of Acts and go to chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, we know that it is called the road to Damascus. It's the Damascus Highway. This is where Paul comes to saving grace. We know that he has letters in hand. We know that he's going to Damascus to bring back Christians again, place them on trial. He would concede to some of their death, as he did prior to Stephen's death. But see, this is where God got a hold of Paul. And so this morning, has God gotten a hold of you? 
Has God brought you to saving grace? Have you become a Christian by the will of God as Paul was not only a Christian but an apostle by the will of God? It's God's will that you would be saved. It's God's will that you would serve him. And so here in Acts chapter 9, I just want to read a few verses. Look at verse 9 or verse 10 with me. We know that Paul has gone to Ananias' house. He says, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus. His name was Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here am I, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, Arise, go to the street called Straight, and inquire of the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, listen, he is praying. For behold, he is praying. Now, Paul was blinded on the road to Damascus. A light shone round about him. He was knocked off of his animal. Remember that Paul responds, as Saul of Tarsus, he says, Is that you, Lord? He recognized that it was the power of God that knocked him down. Then Paul's blinded and he has to be led to Damascus. He's taken to this man's house. But now he's praying. When we go through trials, when we go through tribulation, when we go through hardship, when I go through pain, it's when God has my attention. It's when God's breaking me. It's when God's breaking you. You know and I know for a fact that when I'm in despair, is when I'm praying to God. When my emotions are running. When the trials I can't even bear. Some of the people in our church right now that are so ill with this cancer. God has them in the place of prayer. You see, when things are going great, it just seems that I don't need God. It's a natural reaction. But when God begins to move in our hearts... God begins to break us. I seem to want to cry out to the Lord. That's happened to me many, many times. And so here's Paul now. And he tells, God tells Ananias, these are the words of Christ. For behold, he is praying. In verse 12 it says, and in a vision, he had seen a man, this is Paul now, He had seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. And we know that Ananias was concerned about this. In fact, Ananias questioned God. Do you know who this Saul of Tarsus is? He was a tyrant. He was vicious. He was mean. He consented to Stephen's death. You read that in earlier chapters in the book of Acts. But now he's a man of prayer. And church, if anything you could ask the Lord for, God, make me a man of prayer. Make me a woman of prayer. Lord, make me a young person of prayer. Lord, teach me how to pray. This was Paul's heart, church. He cared for the church at Colossae. Now, we know that Paul had many other churches that were planted by him. And he wrote letters to them. And he cared for each church. It all started with his trial. And then as you read Paul's testimony, Paul's story, many trials. And that much more he prayed. Now let's go back to our text now. 
We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Verse 4, he says, since we heard, listen, of your faith in Jesus Christ and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now here are three main characteristics that Paul speaks of that should be part of my life, part of your life. There has to be working in and through us this faith, this love, this hope. And so look at verse 4 again. Here's the testimony of the church at Colossae, their faith, their trust in God. And then he says love, their love for God, their love for the church. And there's just something about a Christian when they come to Christ by faith and that God bestows that agape love, that love of the Spirit, and that you care and you're concerned for Christ, you're concerned for God, you're concerned for others. You're concerned to see others come to saving grace as you have. But then look at verse 5 now. He has spoken about their faith, spoken about that love that's in them. Because of the hope, and that's the third characteristic, the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before, in the word of truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you're looking forward to heaven, Paul says, since you first heard the truth of God's good news, here's the key now. You come to saving grace. How? <coughs> Excuse me. Through faith. Through love. But now you have this hope, this expectation. The Colossi Church... And for us today, do you have this faith? Do I have this faith? Do you have this hope? Do I have this hope? Do we have this love? Do you have this love? This was the church at Colossae. And Paul was just blown away by them. Never met them, but he got such great reports of them. Now look at verse 6. He goes on. Which has come to you. This faith, hope, and love, which has come to you as it has also in all the world. Now, underline that because many say today that Jesus will not come back until the whole world's heard the gospel. Well, according to the scripture here, in the time of Paul, the whole world had heard the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and the day you knew the grace of God in truth. When you come to that place of saving grace. Now the gospel message of hope came to Colossae and to the, all the known world at the time. It brought forth fruit. And see, fruit is essential to the body of Christ. Now if you're taking notes, we've shared this many times. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, we see the fruit of the Spirit. It's not plural, fruits. It's singular because it starts with love. There must be this agape love for Christ. You're going to see the agape love 
for his word. The agape love to share with others the kingdom of God. But Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, 23, it tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God's grace is what changed the church at Colossae. God's grace is what's changed you. He says here, His grace changed you the day you heard and you understood the truth about God's kindness to all sinners. That's us, church. Notice how the Holy Spirit is working. I can't come to saving grace unless the Spirit of the Lord touches my heart. Now, if Paul is writing in 64 A.D., and Jesus died in 32 A.D., we've got a span here of the churches, the early church is 32 years old. And the gospel had gone out to all the world. And I look today, with the technology that we have, we have CDs, we have cassettes, we have radio, we have television. We have jets where, you know, evangelists and ministers can go from uh, one side of the country to the other. Paul did everything by walking or by ship or riding some kind of animal. And yet the gospel had gotten out to all the then known world. And look today, church. As the Lord has not come back yet, less and less Christianity is coming to pass. The churches aren't full like they used to be. Little by little, man is losing the vision. In fact, the statistics are showing us that by the year 2020, there's going to be a minimal church. But there will always be the church of God. God always has his remnant of people. But look at our own families that won't hear the word of God. Our own loved ones that won't hear the word of God. Because the appetites of the world are so strong. And so Paul is rejoicing over the church at Colossae. Now look at verses 7 and 8. Let's go back to our text. As you also learn from Epaphras, that was the pastor of the church, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. He says in verse 8, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Epaphras must have come with such a tremendous testimony. You know, from time to time, I'll run into somebody, and they'll say, we heard about your church. We heard about the teaching ministry. We heard that there are saints there that just love the Lord. And praise God, you're always going to have that. Not that our church is special. Those that come to saving grace. Somehow they're known. And so here, Epaphras. Interesting, I like the names of the Greeks, the Greek names or even the Old Testament names in, in the Hebrew that we're studying on Wednesday nights in the book of Ruth. We had a field day last Wednesday. But Epaphras here, his name means charm or charming. He was the church leader at Colossae. Paul calls him the minister. Now, just a quick Greek translation. The word minister is the word diakonos. 
And I think a lot of times we put uh, the minister on a pedestal. But I want you to see what the Greek word diakonos, it means a servant, a waiter of tables, an attendant, one that cleans tables. That's a servant of the Lord. But in verse 8, Epaphras was the one who informed Paul all what God was doing in and through the church at Colossae. What a testimony. The love that they had in the Spirit. And so Paul was so thankful for them. And see, church, all of this is to set it up as we begin here, verses 9 through 11 now. And Paul is going to bring forth, listen to this, a five-part prayer for the church at Colossae. How much more should it be also a five-part prayer for our church? A five-part prayer for the churches in our community. And this is what Paul is just rejoicing. And again, he's never been there. He's never even seen the saints. He met Epaphras, and that was about it. But notice as he begins here, and here we find the first prayer quickly. In verse 9, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. There's Paul's position again. Man, we've been praying for you, church, at, at Colossae. I like when somebody tells me, Pastor Bob, we're praying for you. We're praying for the church. Many times we get letters and, and we get cards from people that were part of our church. They've moved on. And they're in another state. They're in another country sometimes. And they'll write back. They'll say, we're praying for you. And that's so appreciative. And this is Paul. He says, I do not cease to pray for you. And here, here's the first promise. He says, that you may be filled, I like that, with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. <coughs> Excuse me. Here's Paul's prayer. Number one, that they be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. But I want you to see something about the word filled here. That's why we come to church, that we might be filled with God's word. That we might be satisfied with God's word. The word in the Greek here means to be crammed full. To be satisfied full. To be fully supplied with God's word. Notice that he says, with, the God, uh, with God knowledge of his word. Knowing God's wisdom and spiritual things. That the word and the spirit go hand in hand. Church, it is so important to see this. And so now, let's go to the second portion here. Verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so the, second, the first part of the prayer was that they would be filled with God's Word. Secondly, the part of the prayer that they would walk worthy. The word walk is the manner of life. That they would walk worthy, the manner of life in Christ Jesus. And thirdly, that they would be fruitful. The word is maturity. That they would be mature in God's works. You see, works do not save us. But works come automatically after saving grace. You walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work. I don't work to get saved. I'm saved. But then I want to do for God. 
This takes place after our salvation in Christ as you come to saving grace. You see, the Gnostics were teaching that Jesus was not God. The Judaizers were saying Jesus is fine, but you also need to do some works. Be careful when they add works to your salvation. And here's the fourth part of the prayer. Don't stay where you're at. Listen, spiritually. But the fourth part of Paul's prayer, that they would grow in God's word. That they would grow in God's spirit. And man, that's my prayer here this morning. That you be filled with the spirit. That you be filled with God's word. That you be satisfied as we shared earlier. That you walk worthy of the manner of Christ. That you mature in good works. And now, don't be content where your spirituality is. But grow in God's word. Grow in God's spirit. Listen to this verse. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Peter says that you will grow from the milk of the word. Grow to maturity in your daily walk. We've shared this before. I hope you're not the same Christian you were six months ago. We should grow that much more. And honestly, if you come to the church on Sundays and Wednesdays, you are going to grow in the Word of God. It's important to grow in maturity. Now, the Holy Spirit is the one that teaches us. I'm up here. I'm the instrument. When you teach or if God has you witnessing, you're the instrument. You're the tool. The Holy Spirit is available to each one of us. I want you to turn to this passage. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14. And look at verse 25. These are things that we need to know. That we're going to grow. As the Holy Spirit, listen, teaches us. As the Holy Spirit brings forth the Word of God that we might understand. Remember the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3. Take heed to what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to the church. And so here in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, look at verse 25. Jesus knows that it's He's close to his time of death. He says in verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. So this is before his death. But the helper, look at verse 26. The parakletos, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Underline this. He will teach you all things. And he will bring all things to your remembrance that I said to you. Jesus was their teacher there for three and a half years span. But as Jesus was getting ready to die, to be buried, to rise again on the third day, and then the 40-day post-resurrection, and then the ascension into heaven, Jesus knew. Ten days later at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell upon the early church. And that same Holy Spirit is still with us today. It's the Holy Spirit that teaches us. You come to church, you receive. You read on your own, you receive. And when the time comes, you're sharing with somebody. All things that you're learning come in remembrance, and you're able to share with them. You say, how did I do that? You didn't. It was the power of the Holy Spirit in you. He's our teacher. 
I'm the instrument. I'm the avenue. But it's the Holy Spirit that teaches us. That's why Isaiah says God's word will not come back void. Let's go back to our text now. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 11. And he goes on with this prayer. This is the fifth part now. Strengthen with all might according to the glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. So here's the fifth part of the prayer. My prayer for you, Paul says, is that you be filled with the Holy Spirit again. You be strengthened with might. All of these words speak of the power of God's Holy Spirit. They come from the same Greek word as dunamis. Different verbs and such, but that you be strengthened with might. And he says both uh, that the power of the Holy Spirit would empower your life. You see, since the book of Acts in chapter 2, we should never be the same, church. There are those that say that in the book of Acts in chapter 2 was a, a temporal thing. That the Holy Spirit fell on the early church and the Holy Spirit did his effective work and that we don't need the Holy Spirit anymore. Church, that's not true. We need the power of God's Holy Spirit. Now I want you to turn to this passage. Let's go to the book of Acts now, chapter 1. The prophecy in Joel, chapter 2, 750 years before the Holy Spirit was promised to fall. At Pentecost, 10 days after Jesus' ascension, the Holy Spirit falls on the early church there in Acts chapter 2. But look at Acts chapter 1. He's getting ready to ascend into heaven. He knows it. In verse 4 it says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. This was a promise from Jesus. I'm not going to leave you as orphans, but I'm going to send to you the Paracletos, the Holy Spirit. He's going to be with you. Now look at verse 5. He tells them, for John truly baptized, this is John the Baptist, John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It would be 10 days after his ascension into heaven. Not water baptism, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 6, Therefore, when they had come together, these are the disciples, they asked them, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now Luke is writing this in the book of Acts. They were concerned. The oppression of Rome, the iron fist of Rome was just too harsh. And so they were assuming that Jesus was going to set up his kingdom age now. And they missed the mark. Because look at verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times of the season, whether the Father has put in his own authority, which the Father has put in his time schedule. The time of restoration will come in his time. Be careful when anybody ever gives you a date. While Jesus is coming, I can guarantee you he won't come that day. But you got those out there, and they're still doing it, even today. It is not for you to know the times or the season which the Father has put in his own authority. And then he says in verse 8, 
This is the third preposition of the Holy Spirit. And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When we study the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, there's a threefold message. There are three prepositions that speak of the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to develop them all here this morning, but Paul here is speaking about this third preposition. But real quick, in John chapter 14, verse 17, we see the first two prepositions. First of all, the Holy Spirit's going to be with you. The word is para. If you've come to saving grace, the Holy Spirit came alongside you, para, and he convicted you. He convicted me. He pricked our hearts. He pricked your hearts. And we are convicted to come to saving grace. And in the same verse there, John 14, 17, then after conviction, the Holy Spirit will be in you, E-N. When I recognize I am a sinner and that I need a Savior, Lord, forgive me, come into my life. He comes in. The Holy Spirit tabernacles within you. But you see the third aspect. The P experience, the upon experience, is found here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit will appear, E-P-I, upon you. He will overflow on you. You see, again, there are those that believe the Holy Spirit convicts you. And then when you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes in you, and then they leave it there. But we need the unction of the Holy Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. This word that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you with power, the word power is dunamis. He's going to miraculously come upon you. Remember when Peter gave his first sermon? Who is this simple fisherman? Now filled with the power of God's Holy Spirit. You shall receive power. Supernaturally, the Holy Spirit falls upon us. Now, I want you to see the, the scripture here. So many times we think that the Holy Spirit is only that I would speak in tongues, and yet that's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Or that I might prophesy, that's another gift of the Holy Spirit. That I might have a gift of laying on hands and see people come uh, to healing. And that's another gift of the Holy Spirit. But according to verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be an effective witness for me. The empowering is initially that I might be a witness for Christ. I might share his love. You might share his love. That's how I came to save me grace. Somebody prayed for me. Somebody shared Christ with me. It's the same with you. And so the power of the Holy Spirit, that's what the church at Colossae was all about. The church at Ephesus. The church of Philippi. All the churches that Paul dealt with. You this morning, the church here at Calvary Chapel, that we would have this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Paul was so adamant here. For this, he was being so thankful to the Lord. Now let's go back to our text. <coughs> Excuse me. And then he goes into verse 12, and he says, 
giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, the ones that have come to the light, the light which is Christ. Now, Paul's going to give us three reasons as Christians to give thanks. First of all, he says, he says here in verse 12, because God has saved us, we have an inheritance, church. What a radical statement. <laughs> I don't know. I, the guy that lives up north, well, he doesn't live there, up in northern New Mexico, uh, Turner. He owns all that land, and he owns all those bison. He, I mean, you know, what's he going to do with them all? In fact, they're worried because he's buying up land everywhere. And, and he's going to have a lot of property. He already has a lot of property. And some might wonder, well, who is he going to leave it to? Well, what if he leaves it to you? I, I, you're probably saying, well, what am I going to do with it? That's right. But what if you get nothing? What if you don't know Ted Turner, and I'm sure you don't? And what if your mom and dad have nothing? What if you never buy a piece of property? You get to heaven. God says, here's your inheritance. He shows you the kingdom of God. Now, in the book of Revelation, it says that God's streets are paved with gold. I go, Lord, is, you know, Solano, is that mine? <laughs> it's paved with gold. You can have it, Bob. It's yours. The pearly gates, the 12 stones, Lord, are those mine? Yeah, you can have them. Imagine the inheritance of all the land, of all the money, all the portfolios you might desire to have. Imagine having the inheritance in heaven. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. I love this. Now in verse 2, it qualifies us in the church at Colossae. We're the saints, the faithful ones in the church. Because you have come to the light. Now, if you were here for our candlelight service, in John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So we've come to that light. We've come to that light out of darkness. Now he goes on. Here's the first promise. We have an inheritance. Three reasons as Christians to give thanks. Secondly, look at verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. Underline that. Put quotations around that. Because I've come to saving grace, not only do I have inheritance, but I have this inheritance because he's delivered me. He's rescued me from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. So here's the second reason to be thankful. Not only do I have an inheritance, but... He rescued me. He rescued you. What did he rescue us from? The power of darkness. Church, don't take this lightly. We have been delivered from darkness. Now, there's three verses. I'm going to just read them to you. But all three verses, Jesus brings them forth. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, he says, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, verse 13. Then the king said to the servants, bind him 
hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then lastly, Matthew chapter 25, verse 30, and cast the unprofitable prophet or servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All three verses, Jesus speaks of this outer darkness. The word darkness here is obscurity. Darkness. We've come to the light, church. He has set us free. So, he's given us inheritance. He's delivered us. He has set us free. Delivered us, uh, rescued us from darkness. And lastly, verse 14, listen. In whom we have redemption. I like this. In whom we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Man, what a, what a beautiful picture here. Now we know in the Old Testament, you would come in and bring your animal sacrifices. You would bring in a turtle dove. You would bring in a lamb or a sheep or a goat or a bull. Then you would have to do it again next week. And the animal sacrifices kept coming. They were called kofar in the Hebrew. It covered your sin, but it wasn't complete yet. Remember when Jesus was coming uh, to be baptized by John. And then John sees him, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Jesus is this complete Lamb. The book of Hebrews says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Everything up to that point, it was just a covering. It was temporal. It was pointing to the cross. And now, he has delivered us. We have inheritance. We have been redeemed. The word redeemed by his blood is beautiful. We have been ransomed. He paid the full price, church. You see, if we came in Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, animal sacrifice after animal sacrifice, Pastor Jeff and I would be up here, Pastor Jay, we would bring him out of children's church, there would be a bloody mess. But it wouldn't complete it. We'd have to do it again next week. But Jesus says, at the cross, it is finished. He ransomed each one of us that are truly born again of the Holy Spirit through his precious blood. No more blood of lambs, rams, goats, and sheep. We are his purchased possession in Jesus Christ. Jesus' blood has forgiven my sins, your sins. Listen, past, present, and future. When I make a mistake, when you make a mistake, the enemy's there quickly. Oh, you think you're saved. Look at you. And that's, I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb. I remember when I first heard that terminology. I mean, I mean, think about it. You're not a Christian. You don't understand. What do you mean I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb? It just doesn't faze me. But it's this precious blood. Remember in the book of Exodus when uh, death was going to come into the camp, they took the blood and they put it in the doorposts. And death passed. God has covered you with his blood. Man, we are redeemed. We are ransomed. God was, he's so gracious to us. And here's Paul. 
just thanking the Lord for the work that was done at Colossae, the work that was done in all the world in 32 years of the, of the gospel. Look at us now, 2,000 years later. And I thank the Lord for the power of his spirit that has convicted and brought many to saving grace. But there's still, still more, some of our own families that are not born again of the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, there was this error, this heresy, this Gnosticism that was undermining the teachings. It's always been there. There are those that do not believe today that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Remember, Doubting Thomas there in John chapter 20. When he sees Jesus, he says, hey, look, here's my hands and my feet. Because he said, I want to touch them. Thomas falls. That's the best he could do, church. He falls on his face. My Lord and my God. He gave Jesus deity. He gave Jesus deity. And be careful for those that tell you different. Oh, God is everywhere. No, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to the Father but through me. And today, uh, the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth is fighting words in many camps. You see, I can tell you that that wall there is God, and you go, oh, yeah. There's people that buy it. Well, uh, the drapes are God. Oh, yeah, I believe it. But Jesus, listen, Jesus, he is God. And he paid the full ransom for you and me. When he was on that cross, he says, it's finished. It's done. No more animal sacrifices. I am the complete lamb. That's is Jesus. Praise the Lord. Let's all stand. We'll end with a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful. We are so thankful for your love, your grace, your mercy, Lord. Thank you for the faith and the hope and the love that you've bestowed in us, Lord. And Father, thank you for the church at Colossae that was such a church that five points of prayer that Paul brought forth. Never met them, never been there, but he heard about their love, their faith, their hope in, in you, Lord. And so, Father, right now, <coughs> excuse me again, before we conclude, we want to give that opportunity here this morning. Have we been redeemed have we been rescued? Do we have an inheritance in heaven? Have we come to saving grace? With every eye closed, every head bowed, I want to give you that opportunity before we leave here this morning. If you're not sure or you're not a Christian and you know it, you need to get right this morning. Don't leave here without Christ. I don't know who it might be. Maybe there's one, maybe there's two. But if you're not saved, be honest with yourself. Come to saving grace. Right there where you're at, I want to pray for you. Simple prayer. I'm not going to ask you to come up. But if that's you this morning, you're not sure, you want to be sure, would you raise your hand? I want to say a, a simple prayer of faith with you. Anybody here this morning would love to come to saving grace, raise your hand. I see your hands right here in the front, both of you. Praise God. Anybody else? would like to come to Saving Grace this morning. It's so easy that we can be rescued from outer darkness that the enemy wants to destroy us. Thank you for this, these two this morning here. Anybody else before we close? Let us pray. Father, 
I thank you for these two saints here this morning. I can call them saints now, Lord. They raise their hand to you. You know who they are. You see their hearts, Lord. Lord, they desperately need you. Lord, rescue them from outer darkness, Lord. Give them an inheritance in heaven with the rest of us, Lord. Redeem them now with your precious blood. Wash them clean, afresh and anew. Wash them of all their sins, past, present, and future. And Lord, remind them that they're born again of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord. Lord, give them a hunger and a thirst for your word. And Lord, as we conclude our prayer, we saw the effect of the power of the Holy Spirit there at the church at Colossae. If anybody's here this morning and you're not sure if you've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, here's your opportunity. Here's your chance. By faith, ask Jesus to baptize you in the power of his Holy Spirit. You will never be the same. And that the Lord would give you, give us a hunger and a thirst for your word, for your righteousness. Father, bless these this morning, especially these two that have accepted you this morning. Father, bless the offering. As you've given to us, we give back a portion. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and we all agree by saying amen.